Let's now open up God's Word once again to our sermon text, which is Daniel chapter 1. And as we'll hear in the message, Daniel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. They lived at the same time in the same era. And so that connection also comes into play in this sermon. Daniel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, reading through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May God bless the reading of his word, as well as the proclamation of his word this afternoon. Following the sermon, our song of response will be Psalm 16, the stanzas 4 and 5. 
Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Daniel contains some of the best known and most loved stories in all of the Old Testament. And if, like me, you grew up hearing Bible stories, reading story Bibles, then you'll remember these stories, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the writing on the wall, the vision of that giant statue being destroyed by that stone that fills the earth. But Daniel isn't just composed of these stories of faith that are so appealing to children. It also includes some of those apocalyptic visions that are so fascinating to so many people who are always on the lookout for the great tribulation and the rapture. People who like to calculate the symbolic numbers. People who uh, find the European Union and the United States and Russia and the modern state of Israel on the pages of Daniel. But before we get to these exciting stories and the fantastic visions, we start with an introductory chapter that sets the stage for everything that will come. In chapter 1, we're introduced to the main human characters in this book, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and his three companions. And we learn about the geographical setting, which is the land of Babylon. We learn about the historical setting. After the siege of Jerusalem, when the Babylonians brought a number of Jews back to live in Babylon. And throughout this chapter, we will see that the main character isn't really any one of these human characters at all. It's God. So we begin with the historical details. You could say that Daniel describes what happens first as a historian and then as a theologian. It was the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, besieged the city of Jerusalem. But we know that history is much more than just a series of of chance events without a goal, undirected, meaningless, and purposeless. History, all of history, is in God's hands, and He's directing all of these things for His own purposes. And right here in verse 2, we see one of the central themes of the book of Daniel. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now Nebuchadnezzar may have thought that his might, his own personal attributes, his greatness had given him yet another victory. And when he placed the the, the vessels of the temple of Jerusalem into the temple of his own gods, He may have thought that it was his majesty or the greatness of his gods that had allowed him to humiliate the God of the Jews. But ultimately, it was the Lord who was showing his greatness. And he was doing so by means of this earthly king. And so the Lord was using Nebuchadnezzar to fulfill his promises. Now, the Lord was also showing his faithfulness to his word by means of this first stage in the defeat of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Because God's covenant people had rejected him. Outwardly, they may have been doing all of the right things, but in reality, they had rebelled against him. They were being conformed to the world around them instead of being the light to the world that God had called them and created them to be. They were seeking help, Not from the Lord, but from the political alliances with the nations around them. From the false gods 
of these nations. Instead of humbly trusting in the Lord who had delivered them from Egypt and who had brought them to the promised land in the first place. And because of this, the covenant curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28 were being fulfilled. Deuteronomy 28 verse 25 says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Verse 32 of Deuteronomy 28, Your sons and your daughters will be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. And verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. All of this was happening. But why was it happening? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you. In verse 45, of Deuteronomy 28. Of course, at this moment in history, Nebuchadnezzar had no idea that he was being used by the Lord to fulfill his own purposes. Nebuchadnezzar was simply an empire builder. And one important part of his empire building plan was to remove the best and the brightest from all of the nations that he conquered in order to integrate them, to bring them into the Babylonian Empire. So these young men, the cream of the crop of the conquered nations, they would be molded into the human resources that Nebuchadnezzar would use to consolidate his power and expand his reign. And we can see by the way that Nebuchadnezzar did these things that he was no dummy. He knew exactly what he needed to do in order to take full advantage, in order to make the best use of these human resources. And I use that term human resources here deliberately because that's how empire builders think throughout history, have thought about human beings as resources, as tools to be used, to be shaped and formed and molded to suit their purposes. But the techniques of Nebuchadnezzar were very skillful. First of all, he separated these men from their own community. He broke their ties with their people, with their land, with their religious center. But then he had to begin a process of education, or you could say re-education, or you could call it indoctrination, or you could call it brainwashing. Three years worth of training in the languages and the literature of the Babylonian Empire, in the mythological texts of the Babylonian priesthood, the history of the world as understood and interpreted by Babylon, the most advanced astronomy and astrology, all of the the most advanced scientific discoveries. And all of these disciplines will be taught over these three years from the same Babylonian starting point. And then finally, tying it all together, they would be taught the arts, the magical arts of the magicians and the enchanters, And as we know, that will become very significant in the book of Daniel. But once separated from their roots, that indoctrination process, it wouldn't be difficult. It would be made as pleasant and appealing as possible. So the new recruits would be fed, they would be housed, they would be clothed in luxury. They would eat the best food prepared by the king's top chefs. They would drink the best wine from his cellar. 
Now, it wouldn't have been easy for these men to be separated from their friends and from their families and from their homes, the the land that they had grown up in. Everything that had defined them, they were separated from. But Nebuchadnezzar knew very well that when when it comes to the choice between the carrot and the stick approach, the carrot is always far preferable. He knew that you can gain an ally much more easily using positive reinforcement by making people do what you want them to do rather than by forcing them to do it. So that's what he did. And then the final step in the process, the final step was to give these men a new name, a completely new identity. Now those old names that reminded Daniel and Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, of the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, the covenant God of Israel. Those names that reminded them of all that the covenant God of Israel had done were changed. They were replaced by names that would instead remind them of the Babylonian gods. Because in order to really assimilate these young men, Their religious roots had to be severed in the first place. And so the purpose was clear. From the bottom up, from the core out, these noble young men, these members of the upper classes, intelligent, able to learn, impressive looking, they were being remade. They were being made into something new. Skim the cream off the top of the conquered nation. And you can turn a serious potential threat into an an asset. And you can imagine that for many young men who went through this process, the process would have been too much for them to withstand. Because they would be assimilated. They would become just some more cogs in the imperial machine. And while there may have been some hesitancy at first, they would have been all too willing to submit themselves to that process of transformation. But Daniel resolved that he would not eat the king's food. He would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And with this resolution and with the way that he went about accomplishing it, Daniel showed already his wisdom. He first went to the chief of the eunuchs, asking him to allow him not to defile himself. Now, the chief of the eunuchs wasn't able to help him, And so he went to the man directly over him and his three Jewish friends. And that man agreed, reluctantly it seems, to to a kind of 10-day probationary period. 10 days to see whether Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would end up any worse for the wear on their vegetarian diet. There are various ideas as to, and theories, as to why exactly Daniel didn't want to eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. Perhaps it was because the food had been offered to idols before being served, and Daniel didn't want to defile himself in that way. Perhaps the food was unclean, according to Jewish dietary laws. Or maybe Daniel was making a symbolic statement by refusing to rely on the king for his daily bread. But it was really more than any one of these issues that led Daniel to make that decision. Because Daniel knew very well, as a wise young man, he knew very well what was happening. He could see. 
He knew that he and his friends, his companions, were in grave danger of being sucked in by the Babylonian system. Now, later on in Daniel 9, we learn that Daniel was very aware of the preaching of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was active, as I said, in Judah when Daniel and his friends were taken into exile in Babylon. And so he was very aware of what they needed to do while they were in Babylon. They needed to live peacefully. They needed to work faithfully in exile. As we read in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. But in order to do that, to God's glory and for the welfare of God's people, they had to remember one very important central fact. They had to remember that they were in exile. That they were not Babylonians. That they weren't like the Chaldeans. That they were different from all the rest of the magicians and enchanters and astrologers of the kingdom. They needed to remember, in short, they needed to remember the antithesis. That they were the seed of the woman And that the Babylonians, even though they were being used at this point in history in a very special way, the Babylonians remained the seed of the serpent. At this point in history, it was necessary for them to work together with the Babylonians. Because the Lord had revealed directly through His prophets that what was good for the Babylonians would end up being good for His people. But at no point and in no way should they begin to imagine that they were no different from the Babylonians. Because at bottom, when it comes right down to it, they were not allies. They remained sworn enemies. They were pitted against each other on the opposite sides of this battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so... This stand that Daniel took was a very important one because it maintained that distinction, that separation between the sons of God and the world. It made it very clear that they were different. Now, they would live at peace in exile, but they would never stop being who they were. They would never stop being what God had called them to be in order to maintain that peace. That dividing line, that separating line, would be maintained. And through the maintenance of that division, God's people would be delivered when the appointed time came. And Daniel trusted in God. He trusted that the Lord would bless him and his companions, even if they abstained from that rich, high-quality food and the quality drink that would come from the king's palace. Daniel was more than willing to rock the boat. He was willing to be different. He was willing to speak up for himself and for his brothers. And he was willing to do all of this in order to be faithful, in order to not be led astray. And as we see in the text, the Lord blessed Daniel's faithful choice. The Lord not only kept these young men strong and healthy, despite the fact that they were Surviving only on vegetables, if you can imagine. But he also gave them skill, learning in all literature and wisdom. 
Daniel himself, who was leader of the group, received a special personal gift from God, which would prove to be very important, which was understanding in all visions and dreams. And so when the time came for them to appear before the king, Nebuchadnezzar himself could see immediately that they were ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And why was that? Well, it wasn't because of any personal attributes within these young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It wasn't because they just had some kind of natural talent that they developed within themselves, because verse 17 makes that very clear. Just as the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, verse 2, the Lord gave, just as God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, verse 9, so God gave Daniel favor. In the same way, we read in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. So God gave it to them. It was the Lord who was acting in all of these things, not just for the good of these young men, but for the good of his people. And the final statement of this chapter says a lot more than you might think upon first reading. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now the chapter starts by mentioning two kings, Jehoiakim and Nebuchadnezzar. Now as the scene shifts to Babylon, Jehoiakim just completely disappears from the scene. Nebuchadnezzar dies. Belshazzar takes his place. Then finally the Persians conquer Babylon. Cyrus takes over the throne. And uh, Darius the Mede. But through all of these changes, as kings ascended to the throne, as kings left the throne, and and often, several times in in Daniel, the new king or the arrival of the new king is not even noted, or how or what happened to the old king. Nothing said. Kingdoms rose and kingdoms fell, but the one constant presence was Daniel, the servant of the Lord. And Daniel remained faithful. While he lived at outward peace with the world, he never truly made peace with the world. And while he worked for the good of his people while he was in exile, he never compromised in order to live in peace. He knew that he was different to the fullness of God's kingdom, knowing that the enemy has been defeated. But in the meantime, we find ourselves in very much the same position in which Daniel and his three friends found themselves. The enemy has been defeated, but the war is not over. So we still have a job to do as we await the return of the great king, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16, that the God of peace is still using the efforts of his people to crush Satan under our feet. So we live in a world surrounded by forces of evil that want nothing more than to assimilate us and to swallow us up. They want us to learn its language and its culture, to adapt ourselves to its presuppositions, its scientific presuppositions, to understand the history of the world as it understands and interprets the history of the world, to interpret reality through its lenses, to lead us in the worship of its false gods and to fear what it fears. Understanding this, recognizing this, 
remembering this, recognizing when it's happening, this is the first key to a faithful life lived in the service to the one true God, to the true King. Recognizing and remembering that like Daniel, we should not feel at home in the world. We need to maintain our distinctiveness from the world. That the world is still a divided place. Vision must not and must never be ignored or minimized. Because when we forget that, we put ourselves in danger. Maybe not in physical danger, but we put ourselves in grave spiritual danger. But God has given us His Holy Spirit. Just as He gave learning and skill to Daniel and to his companions. He has provided for us the fullness of what he provided to Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Kingdoms are going to rise and fall. Kings and presidents and prime ministers and premiers will arrive on the scene and they'll disappear just as quickly. New ideas and trends and fads and movements and political programs will appear and then they'll fade away. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all this turmoil and upheaval and constant change, our call is to remain distinct. Not to hitch our wagons in a vain attempt to appeal to the world while imagining we can maintain our distinctiveness while we do that. Not to try to create a false peace with the world when that peace is impossible. And we can do that. We can maintain our distinctness, our distinctiveness. We can do that boldly and fearlessly. Knowing, first of all, that Christ has already won the victory. And remembering how Daniel's faithful witness outlasted three of the most powerful men in the history of the world. When things were at their darkest, during the exile of God's people, God's covenant people in Babylon, when so many people, so many members of God's covenant people had abandoned him and had rejected his law and turned their backs on him and his word, throughout all this, God did not abandon his people. Through men like Daniel and his companions, he guided and kept a faithful remnant. And that remnant would prepare, prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And it's because of that trust, brothers and sisters, that, that we can have in him, that we can refuse to be assimilated without being afraid. Because we know that kings and rulers and ideas and philosophies come and go. But our king is eternal. And he is faithful to his unchanging word. Amen.